We are continuing with Shusaku Endo's book, Silence, and we are on page two. Okay. Reports from the missionaries tell of how on the 6th and 7th October of the same year, 70 priests, both Japanese and foreign, were herded together at Kibachi in Kyushu and forced to board five junks bound for Macau and Manila. You know what a junk is, right? It's those little Chinese boats. Um, they then they sailed into exile. It was rainy that day, and the sea was gray and stormy as the ships, drenched by the rain, made their way out of the harbor, passed beside passed beside the promontory, and disappeared beyond the horizon. Mm-hmm. Flaunting this severe decree of exile, however, thirty-seven priests refused to abandon their flock and secretly remained hid, hiding in Japan. And Ferreira was one of these underground priests. He continued to inform his superiors by letter of the capture of the missionaries and the Christians, and of the punishment to which they were subjected. Today there is still exi- extant. extant a letter he wrote from Nagasaki on March 22, 1632, to the visitor Andrew Palmiro, giving an exhaustive description of the conditions of that time. Okay, so one point to think about in terms of the work of Dean is when persecution happens. So these, these 37 priests were refusing to abandon their, pl- their flock. And one of the themes of this whole book is going to be, at what point do you abandon your flock, and at what point do you abandon your faith, for the sake of life. Right? And so that's going to be a recurring theme all over this place. So. In my former letter, I informed your reverence of the situation of Christianity in this country. And now I will go on to tell you of what has happened since then. Everything has ended up in new persecution, new repression, new suffering. Let me begin my account with the story of five religious who from the year 1629 were apprehended for their faith. Their names are Bartholomew Gutierrez, Francisco, of our own society, and a Franciscan. Gabriel de Santa Magdalena, the magistrate of Nagasaki, to Kineka Unemi. Yeah, this is a good name to know. Oh, what's it? Yeah. Okay, how do you pronounce it then? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tried to. Kineka Unemi. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tried to make them apostatize, apostatize and to ridicule our holy faith and its adherents. For he hoped in this way to destroy the courage of the faithful. But he quickly realized that words alone would never shake the resolution of these priests. So he was forced to adopt a different course of action, namely immersion in the hell of boiling water at Unzen. He gave orders that the five priests be brought to Unzen and tortured until such time as they should renounce their faith. But on no account were they to be put to death. Why not kill them? Because they wanted to be like follow in the footsteps of Jesus and die for their... Yeah. Exactly. But on no account were they to be put to death. In addition to the five priests, Beatrice da Costa, wife of Antonio da Silva, and her daughter Maria were to be tortured, since they too, in spite of all attempts at persuasion, had refused to give up their faith. On December 3rd, the party left Nagasaki for Unzen. The two women were carried in litters, while the five men were mounted on horses, and so they bade farewell. Arriving at the port some distance away, their arms and hands were bound, their feet were shackled, and they were put on board a ship and tightly tied to its side. Mm -hmm. That evening, they reached the harbor of Obama. (laughs) (laughs) 
Rav Obama at the foot of Unzen, and the next day they climbed the mountain where the seven one by one were thrust into a tiny hut. Day and night they remained there in confinement, their feet shackled and their arms bound, while around them guards kept watch. The road to the mountain, too, was lined with guards, and without formal permission from the officials, no one was permitted to pass that way. The next day, the torture began in the following way. One by one, the seven were taken apart from the surrounding people, brought to the edge of the seething lake, and shown the boiling water casting its spray high into the air. And then they were urged to abandon the teaching of Christ, or else they would experience in their very bodies the terrible pain of the boiling water which lay before them. And so one of the interesting slash disturbing things about this is how careful the torture is. It's like step by step, look at this, and then you're going to see even more. And yeah, it's, it's disturbing what a human is capable of doing to another human. The cold weather made the steam arising from the bubbling lake look terrible indeed, and the very sight of it would make a strong man faint, were it not for the grace of God. But every one of them, strengthened by God's grace, showed remarkable courage and even asked to be tortured, firmly declaring that they would never abandon their holy faith. Well, they want to be tortured. So that they could earn a higher place in the eyes of God. Yeah. So it's basically a type of defiance. It's saying, bring it on. Anything you can give me is not going to break me. Hearing this dauntless reply, the officials tore off the prisoners' clothes, bound them hand and foot to posts, and scooping up the boiling water in ladles, poured it over their naked bodies. These ladles were perforated and full of holes so that this process took a considerable time and the suffering was prolonged. So this is, this is like uh, when the Sahaba were being tortured, right? When Bilal was being tortured with uh, with a big boulder put upon him, he kept saying, Ahad, 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 right? Meaning... And, and so, uh, and that would make the masters even angrier, and they'd leave him out in the heat longer. And so his sister, uh, when he was freed, his sister asked, why did you keep saying Ahad? Because that was making them more upset. And he said, in those moments, I became the master, and they became the servants, because I was controlling their emotions. The heroes of Christ bore this terrible torment without flinching. Only the young Maria, overcome with the excess of her suffering, fell to the ground in agony. She has apostatized. She has apostatized. They cried, and carrying her to the hut, they promptly sent her back to Nagasaki. Maria denied that she had wished to apostatize. Indeed, she even pleaded to be tortured with her mother and the rest, but they paid no attention to her prayers. The other six remained on the mountain for 33 days. During that time, the priests Antonio and Francisco, as well as Beatrice, were each tortured six times in the boiling water. Father Vis Vicente was tortured four times, Father Palmero and Gabriel twice. Yet in all this, not one of them so much as breathed a groan or a sigh. Mm -hmm. Fathers Antonio and Francisco, as well as Beatrice da Costa, in particular undaunted by tortures, threats, and pleadings of all kinds, displayed a courage worthy of a man. In addition to the torture of the boiling water, she was subjected to the further ignominy of being obliged to stand for hours upon a small rock, exposed to the jeering and insults of the crowd. But even when the frenzy of her persecutors reached its zenith, she did not flinch. The others, being weak in health, could not be punished too severely since the wish of the magistrate was not to put them to death, but to make them apostatize. Indeed, for this reason, he went so far as to bring a doctor to the mountain to tend to their wounds. Why? Why bring a doctor? So that they don't die because they want to prolong the suffering. Yep. At last, however, Unemi realized, Unemi, Unemi realized that he would never win. 
On the contrary, his followers, seeing the courage of the priest, told him that all the springs in Unzen would run dry before men of such power could be persuaded to change their minds. So he decided to bring them back to Nagasaki. On January 5th, he confined Beatrice to a house of ill fame while the priests he lodged in the local prison, and there they still are. This whole struggle has had the effect of spreading our doctrine among the multitude and of strengthening the faith of our Christians. All has turned out contrary to the intentions of the tyrant. And this is very much like when the Prophet, peace be upon him, is telling the Sahaba at the time of the torture, right? so keep your hands tied. And think of what the effect is, that it's giving you the moral upper hand. Because you have these people torturing you for preaching, right? And you're not responding. And then on top of that, it's building solidarity among, among the people who are being tortured. And then on top of that, um, because you're gaining the moral high ground, it's making it easier for your religion to spread. And if the people were killed, there's the risk that they'd be remembered as martyrs, which could turn them into big legends. And so the point is to make them last as long as possible until they apostatize. And when someone big apostatizes, that breaks everybody else's faith. Right, when you have someone who's big, who commits a sin, that shatters the faith of a lot of people. So what I think about this is a lot of times we keep our faith in other people. Our faith, our iman is sometimes resting on the iman, or the apparent iman of other people. Are you saying, what do I think about it? No, no, I'm just oh. saying that's, that's the, that's the that's case. Yeah. Yeah. Should I come to you? Yeah, sure. Um, such was Ferreira's letter. The church at Rome could not believe that this man, however terrible the torture, could be induced to renounce his faith and grovel before the infidel. So one thing, one way to think about this is look at how many days he's already suffered torture. Okay. Something like over a month of daily torture. On top of that, imprisonment. And so even based on that, they're saying, you know, no, this guy, he could last that long. Why would he eventually apostatize? Yeah. In 1635, four priests gathered around Father Rubino in Rome. Their plan was to make their way into Japan, into a Japan in the throes of persecution in order to carry on an underground missionary apostolate and to atone for the apostasy of Ferreira, which had so wounded the honor of the church. At first, their wild scheme did not win the consent of their superiors. Though sympathizing with the ardor and the apostolic zeal which prompted such a plan, the church authorities felt reluctant to send any more priests to such a country and to a mission fraught with such peril. On the other hand, this was a country in which from the time of Francis Xavier, the good seed had been most abundantly sown. To leave it without leaders and to abandon the Christians to their fate was something unthinkable. Furthermore, in the Europe of that time, <coughs> the fact that Ferreira had been forced to abandon his faith in this remote country at the periphery of the world was not simply the failure of one individual, but a, humil a humiliating defeat for the faith 
itself and for the whole of Europe. Such was the way of thinking that prevailed. And so, after all sorts of troubles and difficulties, Father Rubino and his four companions were finally permitted to set sail. In addition to this group, however, there were three other priests planning to enter Japan secretly in the same way, but these were Portuguese, and their reason was different. They had been Ferreira's students and had studied under him at the ancient monastery of Camporide. For these three men, Francisco Garape, Juan de Santa Marta, and Sebastian Rodriguez, it was impossible to believe that their much-admired teacher Ferreira, faced with the possibility of a glorious martyrdom, had groveled like a dog before the infidel, and in these sentiments they spoke for the clergy of Portugal. They would go to Japan, they would investigate the matter with their own eyes, but here, as in Italy, their superiors were slow to give consent. At length, however, overcome by the ardent importunity of the young men, they agreed to this dangerous mission to Japan. This was in the year 1637. So why did they let them go? Because they're young and they're insisting. It was like they're being stubborn about it. But why did they want to go? It's, um, it's basically to, to find their teacher. And then, also, hopefully they can get martyrdom. So for them, it's like a win-win. They're going to find Ferreira, and they're going to be convinced he didn't, he didn't apostatize, apostatize. And then, on top of that, maybe they'll become Shahid. Sounds like our people, huh? Yeah. Consequently, the three young priests set about preparing for their long and arduous journey. It was customary at that time for the Portuguese missionaries who went to the Orient to join the fleet which went from Lisbon to India, and the departure of this Indian fleet was one of the most exciting events of the year in Lisbon. Before the eyes of the three men there arose in vivid colors the spectacle of an Orient, which was literally the end of the earth and of a Japan, which was its uttermost limit. As one opened the map, one saw the shape of Africa, then India, and then the innumerable islands and countries of Asia were all spread out. And then at the northeast extreme, looking just like a caterpillar, was the tiny shape of Japan. To get to this country, one must first go to Goa in India, then over miles and miles of sea for a period of weeks and months, one must go on and on. From the time of St. Francis Xavier, Goa had been the gateway to all missionary labor in the east. It had two seminaries where students from all parts of Asia studied and where the European missionaries learned about conditions in the country for which they were bound. Here, missionaries sometimes had to wait for six months or even a year before for a ship that would take them to the country to which they were destined. Are you familiar with Goa? Goa is, uh, uh, in India, it's a tourist place. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful location. And, and so that's where they have some seminaries. So it's a tourist place because this... Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's oh. a tourist place and it's a seminary. They have seminaries there because of how beautiful the location is. And so they're going this long journey across the earth, literally from Portugal all the way to, to Japan, one end of the earth to the other, to, to find their, their teacher and to hopefully get martyred. Yeah. Even look at the language that's being used. Japan looked like a caterpillar. So they also kind of have a built-in arrogance about Japan. Okay. Um, like a lot of times, Indians in India will refer to the shape of India as a diamond. Right, that's like a that's a, a self-esteem or self-respect. If they if they spoke of it in some derogatory term, then that's you know a different sentiment. So here, calling it a caterpillar, 
as opposed to, imagine if they said some place looked like a butterfly. A butterfly is nice. Here they're saying it looks like a caterpillar. So there is some built-in arrogance in how they're looking at the world. Three priests strove with all their might to learn what they could about conditions in Japan. Fortunately, there were many reports sent from Japan by Portuguese missionaries from the time of Louis Philippe, and these told and these told of how the new shogun Aimitsu had adopted a policy of repression even more cruel than that of his father or grandfather. Especially in Nagasaki, from the year of 1629, the magistrate. Takenaka Unene had inflicted upon the Christians the most inhuman and atrocious sufferings, immersing them in pools of boiling water and urging them to renounce their faith and change their religion. It was said that in one single day the number of victims sometimes reached no less than 60 or 70. Since it was Ferreira himself who had sent this news, there could be no mistake about its reliability. In any case, the new missionaries realized that they must have from the beginning the realization and conviction that the end of their arduous journey might bring them up against a fate more terrible than any of the sufferings they had endured on the way. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Rodriguez, born in 1610 in the well-known mining town of Tasco, entered religious life at the age of 17. Juan de Santa Marta and Francisco Garpe, both friends of Rodriguez, also studied with him at the seminary of Campolite. From their early days at the minor seminary, they had spent their days sitting at their desks in study, and they all had vivid memories of their old teacher, Ferreira, from whom they had learned theology. And this same Ferreira was now somewhere in Japan. Had that face, with its clear blue eyes and soft radiant light, had it been changed by the hands of the Japanese, oh, had it been changed by the hands of the Japanese torturers? This was the question they asked themselves. They could not believe that this face could now be distorted because of insults heaped on it, nor could they believe that Ferreira had turned his back on God and cast away that gentle charity that characterized his every action. Rodriguez and his companions wanted by all means to get to Japan and learn the truth about the fate of Ferreira. So they're even describing their their teacher as having nur, right? Sounds all very familiar, huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, How are you on reading? We only have about a page or two to go. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, cool. Wait, why? Uh, just in case you're getting tired. Oh, no, I think it's just lack of sleep, but that's okay. On March 25th, 1638, the Indian fleet sailed out from the river Tagus to a salvo of guns from the fortress of Belem. On board of the Santa Isabella were the three missionaries who, after receiving a blessing a blessing from the bishop, Jao Dasco, had boarded the commander's ship. As they reached the mouth of the Brown River and plunged into the blue noonday sea, they leaned against the side of the ship, watching the promontory and the mountain gleaming like gold. There were the red walls of the farmhouses, the church. From the church tower, the tolling of the bell, which bade farewell to the departing ships, was carried out into the sea. Now for their journey around Africa to India. Three days after departure, they hit up against a terrible storm on the west coast of Africa. On April 2nd, they reached the island of Porto Santo, sometime later Madeira. On the 6th, they arrived at Canary Islands, where they encountered ceaseless rain pouring down from a sky which contained no breath of wind. In the utterly windless calm, the heat was unbearable. And then, in addition to everything, disease broke out. On the Santa Isabella alone, more than 100 victims lay moaning on the deck and in the bunks below. Rodriguez and his companions, together with the crew, hastened around tending the sick and helping to bleed them. July 25th, the Feast of St. James, the ship at last rounded the Cape of Good Hope. 
On this day, a violent wind again arose so that the mast of the ship was broken and crashed down on the deck with a rending sound. Even the sick and Rodriguez and his companions were summoned up to rescue the foresail from the same peril. But scarcely had they succeeded in their attempt when the ship ran on a rock. If the other ships had not been there to help, the Santa Isabella would probably have sunk there and then. After the storm, the wind again calmed down. The sail lay lifeless. Only its pitch-black shadow fall, fell upon the faces and bodies of the sick, who lay like dead men on the deck. And so the days passed one by one with the glaring heat of the sun, beating down upon a sea which had not so much as a swell of the waves. All these mishaps prolonged the journey so that food and water became scarce. But at last, on October 9th, they reached their destination, Goa. After arrival, they were able to get more de detailed news about Japan than had been possible at home. They were told that since January of the year in which they had set sail, 35,000 Christians had caused an insurrection at Shimabara, and in the ensuing bloody conflict with the forces of the Bakufu, the rebels had been butchered to the last men, men and women, young and old, all alike had been slain. As a result of the war, the whole district was so desolate that scarcely a human shadow could be seen, while the remnants of the Christians were being hunted down one by one. The news, however, which gave the greatest shock to Rodriguez and his companions was that, as a result of this war, Japan had cut all trade relations and intercourse with their country. Portuguese ships were forbidden to enter the, the harbors of Japan. It was with the realization that they could not be brought to Japan in a Portuguese ship that the three priests reached Macau. They felt desperate. The town of Macau, in addition to being the base of Portuguese operations in the Far East, was a base for trade between China and Japan. Consequently, if they waited the, here, there was the possibility that some stroke of good fortune might help them on their way. Immediately on arrival, they received clear-cut advice from the visitor Valignano, who was in Macau at the time. Missionary work in Japan, he said, was now out of question, nor had he any intention of sending missionaries to a country fraught with such dangers. From the time of the outbreak of persecution in Japan, it should be said, the whole administration of the Japanese province of the Society of Jesus had been entrusted to the superior, Valignano, who ten years before had founded at Macau, who had founded at Macau a college for the formation of missionaries bound for China and Japan. In regard to Ferreira, whom the three men intended to seek out after arrival in Japan, Valignano gave the following report. From the year 1633, all news from the underground mission had came to an abrupt and drastic end. Dutch sailors returned to Macau from Nagasaki and related that Ferreira had been taken and tortured in the pit. After that, whole, after that, the whole matter was obscure and investigation of the true facts was impossible. This was because the Dutch had left on the very day that Ferreira had been suspended in the pit. The only thing that could be said with certainty was that Ferreira had been cross-examined by the newly appointed magistrate in Au Anyway, the Lord of Chicago. In any case, the Macau mission could in no way agree to priests traveling to Japan to a Japan in such conditions. This was the frank opinion of Valignano. Today we can read some of the letters of Sebastian Rodriguez in the Library of the Portuguese Institute for the Historical Study of Foreign Lands. The first of these begins at the time when he and his companions heard from Valignano about the situation in Japan. Okay. So they're on their way. And, and, you know, it's the, the route just to get there is very perilous, and that's nothing compared to what they're going to face. Any thoughts, questions, observations? I thought you said that this was 
Yeah, this is all this is all fake. Okay, so there's no letters. Yeah. Okay. As far as I know, uh, I, I haven't come across anything anywhere that says this is a true story. So I think even that last paragraph is also Just fiction. Yeah. But yeah, let's see. Let's see which way it goes.